Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. All right, how's everybody doing? Good. Prayers were loud tonight. I love it. I love it. My name is JJ. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. I get to oversee missions and, and also get to share the word with you tonight. And really, I'm, you know, I'm going to ask a few questions which landed me in the scripture that, that I'm in tonight. And it's really just been inside of this theme of what it is to be the church. Like, no kidding, what is it to be the church? And we're in interesting times, right? Uh, so, some questions. Uh, first question is, what is it like to be a Christian actively living out your faith in 2021? How's that going for you guys, right? What is that like? What do we need to be aware of as we navigate the culture? What is it like to engage our culture? And what do we need to learn to interact well and stay true to our biblical foundation? And so, these questions landed me in Acts chapter 17. And you can, if you have your Bible or your phone, iPad, whatever it may be, you can go to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to be in verses 22 through 34 tonight. And the title of the message that I've given is To the Unknown God. And that's part of the culture that we're walking in, and we need to be aware of that. So let's, let's, take, the, uh, let's take the Scripture up to prayer and, and the Word up to prayer, and we'll, we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do put the Word before you, and just this section of Scripture it's in Acts, Lord. It's just your, um, your word is going forth. The power of, of your life, the knowledge of your resurrection, Lord, all of it. It's going forth and people are listening. Lives are being changed. And even as we'll see in Acts, the world is being turned upside down. Amen. Lord, that we would be those that that's the accusation against us. Lord, we know that your spirit will guide us. It's not by our own might, Lord, it's not by our power, Lord, but by your spirit. And so just as we delve into this level of uh, this, this section of scripture together, just that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts for what you would have us all walk away with to be the church. In Jesus' name we pray. So before getting into the verses, just a little lead up. We find Paul here in Athens, and Paul was on a missionary journey. He had been in Thessalonica preaching the gospel, and the local rulers of the city accused him and his crew of turning the world upside down. Again, not a bad accusation. He had left by night, and he was received in Berea, but the Jews in Thessalonica, they had heard, hey, that's where Paul's at. So they come down to Berea to stir up trouble, and those that were with Paul sent him away, and Paul lands in Athens. While he's in Athens, I imagine Paul just kind of hanging out, you know, just like if we were to go to Southland Station and just walk around, and, and you know, maybe it's a nice summer day, and folks are just gathered in the, uh, in the open area there. So he's walking around, he's hanging out, he's observing, he's picking up some things from the market, maybe even going over all the craziness that had landed him in Athens anyway, in his current situation. And listen to Acts 17, uh, verses 16 and 17, it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, 
He was waiting for his crew to join him. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. That kind of cracks me up. You know, it's like, here's Paul, and he couldn't help himself. He's just being Paul. He's, he's got the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's got the word to share. He's just being himself in Christ. His spirit was provoked, and he enters into dialogue with the community that's there before him. And then some of the Stoics, some of the Epicureans, these philosophers of Athens, they hear him. They hear him talking about these things, and they say, hey, we want you to come to the Areopagus. Now, this is Athens, guys. It's the center of the thinking, philosophical world, and Paul is invited to come and share. And I don't want us to miss the big deal of this. Like, this is a big, big deal. Like, what an adventure. What an adventure Paul is being invited into. He's being invited into this, to the world's hotbed of thought and moral debate. And we've got to feel the tension in that. Like, okay, we're in the moment with Paul. He's been invited into the Areopagus. Can this Christian apostle, trained under Gamaliel, the Jewish scholar, hold the attention of men weaned on the logic of Plato and Aristotle long enough to get the gospel across to them? He would have to present his address to them without any gaps in logic, because these were philosophers. They wanted everything to be logical. So as long as each successive statement Paul made, logically from the preceding statements, the philosophers would listen to him. All had to follow suit. One gap in reasoning... He's done. So there's the tension. Can Paul's gospel presentation pass the gap test? So we pick up in Scripture, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So he begins with the altar, and now he moves on to creation, and he says, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And then he goes from creation, and then he starts getting into the inconsistency of idolatry here, and he says, Nor is he, God, worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Oh, wait a minute. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Paul has even worked his way into a position where with these philosophers, he could even identify this Athenian idolatry as ignorance. And guess what? His audience is still with him. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And here's where Paul loses them. He talks of resurrection without first explaining how 
and why he had to die in the first place. And the scripture goes on to say, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionys... I practiced this and I can't say it. Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, like, just for a moment, we get to go, wow. Like, Paul did it. Paul just had the opportunity to speak in the Areopagus. And think about that. What would it be like for you to get the floor to speak in a university? Or in a public school gymnasium? What would that be like? Paul covered a lot of ground, and they lost him at the resurrection. Where would the crowd lose you? Would there be some who would kick you out? Would there be some who would want more? Would there be some who would believe and join you in fellowship? Look at verse 34 again. It says, However, some men joined him and believed among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Dionysius later became the first bishop of Athens. His name comes from that of the Greek god Dionysus. This Greek god who also included a death-resurrection concept. Hmm. So here's Dionysius, the Areopagite, holding on to Paul's teaching of resurrection. Because as we look, and you know, when we're, in biblical, when, when we're in the Bible and we're looking at literature in this time period, the world of Paul was rich in myth and gods. And guess what? Even today, there are many who would say to you, you're ignorant and you're following a Bronze Age myth. And I would encourage you, you can answer him with, with a quote from C.S. Lewis. And he says, anyone that says the New Testament is just another iteration of myth hasn't read many myths. The New Testament writers knew all the psychological stuff of their times. They knew all the mythological stuff that was part of their day. But what they're talking about is different. It's different. This is no myth. This is a grab-you-by-the-shoulder kind of stuff like, hey, man, have you heard? Have you heard about this? We have to tell you this news that changes everything. They would even say, we who ate and drank with him after his resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus came at the appointed time and he fulfilled all things. He was powerful in word and deed. And it's always been amazing to me how the New Testament has such incredible cultural flexibility. Um, you know, the last time I got to share up here, you guys heard me talk about Brushko. You know, read Brushko. It's that, that book for me is just one of those books where it just shows, showed me that God can operate in any cultural context. It doesn't matter. You know, like this guy comes into this village and this whole village receives Christ. And then at one point, the village that he's working with and living with goes off to another village and they don't even speak their language. And so Bruce goes like, man, man, don't go over there, man. They're, those guys are going to kill you. You have a feud going on with those guys. And they're like, no, 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 we're, we're okay. We'll go. So they go and they come back and the warriors kind of come in back into the village. And he's like, how did it go? And whatever their word for Jesus was, they're like, they accepted Jesus. He's like, wait a minute, you don't even speak their language. But God works. So it's flexible. The New Testament has such incredible cultural flexibility. And just for a moment, I want you to listen to John 1 verse 1 and verse 14. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And everywhere in verse 1 of John 1 and 14 that I read, you see word and God. And in these verses, word is logos and God is theos, where we get our word theology. Bringing these Greek words logos and theos together in relation to the Hebrew Elohim and to Jesus Christ fulfilled rather than destroyed something valid in Greek philosophy. Because Jesus comes at the appointed time. He fulfills all things. And there are countless examples of this, of this in cultures all over the world. I'll give you one more. The Incas. So for a long period of time, the Incas worshipped the sun god called Enti. And so Enti the sun god, you know, they, they, they're worshipping the sun god, but in their experience over time, they're observing, well, okay, the sun comes up, sun goes down, sun comes up, sun comes down. All right, nothing unusual is happening. Oh, and by the way, there are times when the cloud covers the sun and hides the sun, right? Hides the sun and experiences there, and they're like, hmm, what is this that we're worshiping? And I can imagine them transitioning and thinking, wow, there's more. There's more. And this sun is just another part of creation. They saw it, and they began to worship Viracocha, the Lord, the omnipotent creator of all things. Huh. They're getting a little close to Elohim. How did this happen? Well, here's how it happened. It happened from old traditions lying dormant within their own culture. And don't forget what we just read. What did Paul say? And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And we all come from one place. We all come from one blood. And we're dispersed around the globe. And Paul speaks to these old traditions lying dormant in cultures in Acts 14, 16, and 17. Here's what he says. God who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And guess what? He hasn't left himself without a witness today either. And you are one of those witnesses. I am one of those witnesses. We are are witnesses. And as a witness, as a believer, what is it like to engage our culture? So if we were all hanging out in a living room together, and we were able to discuss this and dialogue about it, and share our experiences, ultimately we'd end up with everything being discussed as a contrast to the Bible. And then we would talk about how to deal with it. And here's the cool thing. This is good news. Because since the contrast is with the Bible, it's, it's good news because we don't have to put anything together on how to engage and instruct our culture. All we have to do is be those who are submitted to biblical authority, and then we get to live it out. That's what we do. And it's an, it's an expression of who we are in Christ. So let's set our, settle ourselves in the expression of who we are in Christ, Okay. And in that expression, all we do is we live out our faith truly. Live your faith out truly. And you got to hear that. In the expression of Christ, live out your faith truly. And along the way, I promise you, you'll bump into culture. You'll bump up against it. So what do we need to be aware of in this culture? The culture we're in 
isn't just non-Christian. It's called now post-Christian. So what does post-Christian mean? Post-Christian would sound something like this. Salvation? Whatever, man. The only salvation I need is salvation from the idea of salvation. For a post-Christian, there is no such thing as sin. There is nothing transcendent. This is it, and there's a total rejection of sacred order. That's the culture we're in. The philosopher Charles Taylor in Canada says this, we might be the first generation ever to think that we can find real happiness apart from a transcendent reference point. We're in a culture that's just trying to make it up on their own. For a post-Christian, there's no ground for moral absolutes. There's no standard for right or wrong. There was a time period when society consisted of people who held some basic concepts of God, truth, sin, had a concept of afterlife. And even if they didn't believe, they still considered religion as a positive good. Whereas now, wintering in a time that is hostile to the faith. That's post-Christian. Where Christianity is not seen as a social good, but it's seen as bad for people and a major obstacle to social progress. Our beliefs about sexuality and gender are being viewed as dangerous and restrictive of people's basic civil rights. So that's heavy. So now how do we engage that culture? How do we engage it? This is a hard one. First of all, we got to get their attention. We got to get their attention, and it's hard because the average person spends six hours and 18 minutes a day online. And of those hours, two hours and 25 minutes are spent on social media. That's the average American in one day. It's sad, and it's also challenging. And what's really sad and challenging is that it truly has a real impact. Because what it does neurologically is in our brains, we start making the outside world less real. It's less real than my own thoughts and my own feelings. And so then now my belief becomes thin and we only choose to accept things if they fit into how we want to see ourselves. People lose empathy over time. That one's the one that hit me. A culture losing empathy. And we feel it, don't we? We feel it in the opinions. We feel it in the divisiveness. And we got to let it hit home. We're those people. We're some of those people. So rather than giving our opinions on how things should go, why don't we just follow the Lord and hang out in the disciplines of reading the Word, spending time in prayer, and staying in proximity to those that the Lord has in our life. And check this out. I thought this was super cool. Prayer is being proven right now neurologically to decrease our sense of self. Does that sound familiar? Lord, that you may increase and that I may decrease. So prayer is proven neurologically to decrease our sense of self and increase our compassion for others, which is the exact opposite of losing empathy. Our opinion on social media really doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. What really matters, what really matters are the people you are around on any given day. That's what really matters. Give them your attention, and guess what? They will begin to give you theirs. 
So we've got to get their attention. And then as we're in proximity with them and we're living life together, well, what does life do? Life just goes on and things unfold. And as things unfold and we're in, and we're in fellowship with people, we're friends with people in our world, they're experiencing life. And what, is, what comes up? Unwanted, preg- unwanted pregnancies, disease uh, uh, diagnoses, relationships issues, job loss, you name it. And it's in these times of stress, it's in these times of difficulty, it's in these times of disappointment, it's in these times of suffering that these worldviews that are not biblically based, they get exposed. And as those get exposed, their view of reality and the self doesn't fit human nature. And how does it not fit? It doesn't fit human nature as God designed it. And they feel it. They feel it. They might not have language for it, but they feel it. And here's the key. This is where we get to ask questions. This is where with them we get to ask questions and we get to question their answers. So maybe we're not so quick to bring our thoughts and opinions, but we inquire of them. And as we're inquiring of them, we're getting a look-see into their worldview and we're just asking questions and we're asking questions and we're helping them play out their worldview to a conclusion. takes humility. And what's amazing about this is we're asking questions through these life events as we're coming in humility and we're inquiring into the worldviews. This is where the beauty happens. This is where we get to start digging deep. Now, I'll give you a recent example in my own life, and this this happened recently. Um, I was talking on the phone with an associate, right? Proximity. Somebody I know in in the business world, and we're on the phone and she's telling me about a young person that died. And she's telling me about this person. Um, and I was really pressing in, and she was kind of blocking me out, so I stopped. But as soon as I stopped, she started talking, and she started letting me in. And as she's letting me in, really where she got to is she's like, why, why even care? Like, why even do anything? Why press on? And so in the moment, the Lord gave me the account of Cain and Abel. And I got to share this with her. And I said, you know what? I said, uh, Cain brought his offering and Abel brought his. And, and if you know the word, you guys are in the Bible, Cain and Abel, chapter four of Genesis. So Cain brings his offering, Abel, Abel brings his. Well, God respects Abel's offering, but he doesn't respect Cain's. And the word in Genesis four says, Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. I guess so. My countenance would fall too, wouldn't yours? If you're Cain, this is a tough moment. You've sacrificed. You've brought your sacrifice to God and it didn't turn out. And we all sacrifice. And in doing so, we forego present gratification in hopes of a good future. And Cain sacrifices and God rejects his sacrifice. This shows us that you can work diligently, make the proper sacrifices as far as you're concerned, and yet not have things work out the way you thought. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire for you, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And here's the crucial moment. Cain has a decision to make. He looked around. Sometimes we look around. Those in our life look around. They see suffering. They see horror. They see the vulnerability and mortality of everything that they love and cherish. 
failures, and this turns them. And even sometimes as believers, we get a little doubtful, don't we? And it can turn us against God. Or we maintain faith and we continue moving forward in God's promise and goodness. So this is where she was at. This is where my associate was at. And what the Lord gave me to share in the moment worked out. It proved to be an encouragement for her. So right there in the middle of the workday, talking about the very matrix of being and focusing on the goodness of God. So that ended up working out, but let's not miss the fact that this engagement is a two-way street. It goes both ways. So we get to question their answers, but they also get to question us. And we have to be ready for the answers. I'm going to give you four of the most common questions that are asked of us. And I would encourage you to write them down, and I'm not going to answer these, and I'm not going to spend time on these. I'm just going to lob them out there. But search them out in your own heart. Search them out in Scripture and be prepared to give an answer. Here's one. How can a good God allow suffering? Two. How can God send people to hell? Three. How do you reconcile the Bible with science? Those going into high school are going to have to get real with that one. What about the church's historical record of injustice? Tough questions, good questions, and as a believer, you need to be able to answer those. But hold on a second. Everything that I've just been talking about assumes two things of us as believers. It assumes that as a believer, that you have relationships with non-Christians, befriending them and loving them. That you as a believer know enough about the Bible and your faith to engage in conversation with others. And don't mistake me here, right? Because this isn't really a, a recipe because some of the most engaging people that we meet are, are those new believers that don't have the Bible knowledge yet, but they are engaged and they're telling people about Jesus and it's awesome. But what I am doing is I'm laying out a pattern for our life as the church to have an ongoing impact in the world around us. And we're at a point, and so now when we're at that point with the people in our lives that we have their attention and they have ours, and as we're with them and we're around them, now we're getting into that spot where we can help, help them recognize that they have a problem that requires salvation. There's no one on the planet, not one person, that you, walk, that you, that you bump into on any given day that can live a life without meaning, that can live a life without satisfaction, freedom, identity, forgiveness, both given and received, resolution for moral questions, and hope for the future. Not one. And you're bumping into those people every single day. And as we're in the lives of our non-believing friends, co-workers, acquaintances, here's what we can point to. We can point to a meaning in life that suffering can't take away. And even a meaning that gets even deeper. We can point to a satisfaction that is not based on circumstances. We can point to a freedom that doesn't reduce community and relationships to transactions. And specifically, I'm speaking in the sexual realm. It's just this transactional deal, right? There's no covenant, no big deal, just do your thing. An identity that isn't fragile. An identity that isn't based on our performance or the exclusion of others, a.k.a. cancel culture. Points to a way to deal with guilt 
a way to forgive others without residual bitterness or shame, a way to seek justice that does not turn us into oppressors ourselves, a way to face not only the future, but death itself with poise and peace, an explanation for the senses of transcendent beauty and love that we all often experience. And I promise you, you're not going to break justice, love, and mercy down to a set of atoms. You just ain't going to do it. Those are transcendent values given to us by our very creator. Because eternity is set in everyone's heart. And really what we're doing in these moments is we're helping them see that their needs and their longings point to their need for God. We have to engage. Yes, yes, yes. But we have to do it critically and we have to do it in a way to truly be salt and light as we're out in the community. So here's what we don't do. And these are temptations of the church. We don't withdraw. Don't pull back. You are distinctive as the church. As salt and light, you are distinctive. Do not withdraw. Tears hit me because that's, uh, that's what I tend to do, right? So that hits me hard is uh, I'm one who can check out. Do not withdraw. And we don't look for power to impose our beliefs. It's not political, guys. If I were to start talking to you about racial and economic justice, you would say that I was liberal. If I started talking to you about marriage of a man and a woman and sexual immorality, you would say that I was a conservative. Let's get past that. Jesus is all of those things. And you as the church are all of those things. We don't become so relevant that we just assimilate into the culture, but we are still affirming and we're still serving our neighbors. So our response is a faithful presence within the culture. We're connecting and we're confronting. Connecting and confronting. And when we confront, we're confronting as salt and light. That's what we do. We stay faithful and we stay true to the Bible. So here we are, we gather to fellowship, we gather to worship, and let me add this, may we start talking and game planning. Let us start talking and game planning together. About what? About what you're up to, about what's going on in your life. Like what specifically are you being challenged with? I had a teacher come up to me and just, I'm not not gonna share the details, but like what she was dealing with inside of some decisions that she was having to make you know, about her job, they were big decisions. So there's part of me that's like, oh, you got to get out of that situation. Withdraw. But my goodness, if she withdraws from the situation, where's the salt and light? So we get together and we game plan. We get guidance from fellow Christians for thinking and living at every decisive point of our life. And the church, I think, is at a point where the church is really serving There was a time period where pastors, um, uh, uh, clergy had a lot of answers. In our culture right now, really what it is, is it's a collaboration. That's all it is. We get to come, we get to be basked in the word, and, and you guys are up to so much out in the world, and there's so many unique circumstances that you're in, that it's really about sitting down and just game planning together, about what does it look like for you to continue in your walk and be salt and light. And as we do that, our identity is in Christ, and that's what we bring to the table. 
And if we're really being the church, then as salt, we're doing what salt does. And what does it do? It gives flavor and it preserves. And in giving flavor and in preserving, we're being honest, we're working hard, we're doing good. And here's the preservation part. We're keeping things from becoming corrupted. So let this place be our headquarters. Let our church be our headquarters where we're built up and we're really digging into the realities of what we're facing. Let us be the church and proclaim the reality of Jesus so that when you have your Areopagus moment or I have my Areopagus moment, we're bridging into the lives of those around us to the unknown God to make Him known. Amen? And I'm finishing very early, guys, but that's the word that the Lord's given me. And, you know, just even in preparation, I was just, I was thinking and just wondering, you know, it's like the Spirit searches all things. The Spirit knows how He's going to use His word. And really, I think tonight what I would like to do is for those who really want to be bold or for those who maybe are in a challenging situation, you know, in your workplace, I would ask you to stand, you know, and in standing, you're, you're, you're just, you're acknowledging it. And really, you're submitting to it like, yep, here I am. Yep, I'm, I'm, I'm that person, and I'd like to pray for you. There's some standing up. If you're close to, to a person standing up, if you would, I would ask you, uh, go over and, and lay your hand on them, if you would. Let's pray together as a church. Heavenly Father, Lord, Thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the examples that you've given us, Lord, and, and just how we can just, just, just jump briefly into Paul and the Areopagus, Lord, as he's bridging the gap in his culture. Lord, you give us, you give us uh, those examples, Lord, and, 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 and even as we read in your word and we're in those narratives and we're reading it historically and looking at it historically, it always just jumps right, on the, uh, jumps right in the neon lights and right, right, right to us for our present time. Lord, and for those who stood, Lord, you know, you know exactly why they stand. Lord, um, and if they stand for boldness, give them that, Father. Uh, for them to be salt and light. Um, for, for them not to withdraw, Lord, but to engage. Father, and, and, and for those that's, that, that are standing and maybe it's in a, in a home environment or maybe, it's in, maybe they're a teacher or they're in school or whatever it may be, Father, I would just ask that you give them wisdom, you give them discernment. Um, Lord, and, 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 and that you would open their mouths to share, Lord, that this would be a place for us to game plan, that this would be a place for us to come in, Lord, and just worship and, and, and worship. Why? Because you're worth it. It's worth ship, Lord. And that we would leave encouraged, Lord, that we would leave bold, and that we would leave willing and wanting to engage the culture. Lord, I pray for everyone in here that uh, you, would just, you, would, you would bring non-believers in their path. Teach us, Lord, that, you know, and I just, I just pray that we would be humble and that um, we, would, we would build bridges into the lives of those around us. Ever how you would have it be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 
888-888-7223 or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.